0: Welcome to the how to be awesome at your job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us for episode 224 with Julian Treasure. Julian shares his expertise when it comes to great sound. So that you speak well, you listen well, and you're heard well. So you'll learn, one, the primary filters people listen through. Two, how to develop a powerful voice. And three, the RASA framework for a more engaging conversation. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcripts or the links to items that we've referenced here, you can find that on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep224. That's awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep224. Now here's Julian's story. Julian is a sound and communications expert. He travels the world training people to listen better and create healthier sound. He's the author of the books, How to Be Heard and Sound Business. Julian's five TED Talks have been watched more than 40 million times. His latest, How to Speak So That People Want to Listen, is in the top 10 TED Talks of all time. Julian is regularly featured in the world's media, including Time Magazine, The Times, The Economist, and the BBC. Here's Julian. Julian, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. It's a great pleasure, Pete. Well, I got such a kick out of learning a little bit about you and your background and your passion when it comes to not just messages, but sound itself. So could you give us a little bit of a snippet for what it was like being a drummer for the transmitters? Back in the heady days of the early 80s, just post punk in the UK, it was a wonderful scene. There were
1: bands in every pub and bar. It was uh, an amazing time to be young and in London, really. And I was privileged to be part of that. Made some records, did some John Peel sessions. He's a legendary DJ over here, anyway. And um, it was a gas, really. Um, We we were pretty spiky in those days. We used to be able to empty a
0: club in about five minutes. Uh, So uh, it was a lot of fun. It really was. Now you say spiky to empty a club. There's so many ways I don't, as an American, (laughs) I I can imagine a a few interpretations for that word and scene. Are we talking about fights or what's going on? No, no, not physical
1: violence. The music was was, uh, uncompromising. You know, just in the days after punk uh, music became quite um, difficult to listen to some of it, and we were perpetrating some of that. So uh, you know, people who came to listen to another band that we were supporting, they'd be off to the bar or um, whatever. And we we had our own fans, so you know, it wasn't like nobody listened. Um, but it was a, it was a great time. I mean, there was a lot there were a lot of people there who were not attempting to be like anybody else, who were really making their own voices heard and being very very uh, true to their ideals. Some of it listenable, some of it not so
0: much. Mm. Okay, well, that's a fun setup. And so then you have subsequently transitioned, you're the founder of the sound agency. What's this organization all about?
1: Yeah, well, I went through 20 years of running a publishing company and dealing with major organizations, producing magazines for companies like Lexus and Microsoft and so forth. So I learned a great deal about communication for brands. Um, And when I sold that, um, having played music all the way through that, I wanted to bring the two halves together, really, the half that understood marketing and organizational communication and the half that listened. Because, you know, if you're playing in a group, you have to listen to uh, multiple streams at the same time. You have to be aware of what everybody's doing. Otherwise, you're not a good player. Mm-hmm. So I think musicians listen to the world in a slightly different way. And I was I was doing that and really conscious that the world didn't sound very good. You know, we're surrounded by a noise all the time. So the first job was to ask, is that... Is that a business opportunity? And it turns out, yes, it is. Good sound is good business. So we, we've been helping brands and organizations all around the world to make better sound in spaces, uh, in their communication, in everything they do. Uh, and it, it has a huge effect, of course. You know, if you think about that in terms of another sense, smell, for example, it would be crazy to run a shop with a terrible smell in it. Mm-hmm. But there are so many retailers and institutions, hospitals, schools, places where the sound is absolutely atrocious, bad acoustics, lots of noise, inappropriate, badly chosen music through terrible quality sound systems. You know, we, we, we uh, suffer this almost everywhere we go. And it's not because people are evil, it's just they haven't thought about it. So that's been the mission of the sound agency all through these years. And we've, we've developed a model for how sound affects human beings in four powerful ways. And along the way, I realized that what's important isn't just the sound that organizations make, it's the sound that we all make as individuals. So that comes down a lot of it to speaking and listening, which are two very underdeveloped and underappreciated skills. You know, we don't teach them in school, hardly at all. You know it's a scandal if a child leaves school unable to read or write but children are leaving school every year unable to listen consciously or speak effectively uh, we're just expected to pick these things up as we go along despite the fact that speaking is much older than writing you know we've been speaking complex language for something like a hundred thousand years writing just about four thousand years ago we invented that and yet You know, if you think about communicating these days, most people would reach for something and use their eyes and their fingers to do it.
0: Mm -hmm. Right. Absolutely. Also, this is sparking all sorts of ideas. So I want to dig a little bit into, you know, some of the how, some of the keys to the effective speaking and listening. And it seems like you've got some genuine credentials, some authority here. Your TED Talks have been seen over 40 million times. What are some of the keys that have made those compelling, shareable, powerful talks for folks?
1: Uh, Well, there's a lot of
0: factors involved in in speaking powerfully, which
1: is, I guess, what we're talking about here, as opposed to the listening. Although I I would like to come back to that.
0: Oh, let's do that too,
1: yes. Yeah, because, I mean, uh, the thesis of, of the book I've just written is that speaking and listening are circular. It's a circular relationship. It's not a straight line from speaking to listening. So the way I speak affects the way you listen, and the way you listen affects the way I speak, and that is a dynamic which is going on all the time in human conversation. And in addition, all of that happens inside of a context which very often is, you know, like a noisy coffee bar or a, a street with, a, with, with noisy traffic or, you know, things which are mitigating against what we're trying to do, creating noise which obscures the signal. So um, there's a lot of things involved. I mean, first of all, get the context right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you wouldn't want to propose marriage in a noisy Starbucks, probably. Right. Uh, and you wouldn't want to ask for a pay rise on a street corner next to a, 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 a guy who's drilling. Mm-hmm. So you think about the context. And very often we go unconscious about this, and we do. I mean, those examples are extreme, but we do have conversations in inappropriate situations where perhaps we don't have the privacy we need or perhaps there's noise which is interrupting and uh, getting in the way of our very important communication so getting the context right is is really important and then you know understanding the dynamic of speaking and listening so you know let's talk about speaking first then it's what you say and it's the way that you say it And uh, probably the most common question I've been asked in all my seminars over the years is, how do I organize my content so it's, you know, it's effective and pithy and not rambling and well organized in in my mind. So I I actually speak what I'm trying to get across. Um, Well, that becomes a habit if you think about content and you ask certain little questions before you start speaking. Um, like so what for the other person? It's a question that editors ask journalists all the time when they're training them. So what? So what? So what? You know, one of the cardinal sins of journalism is what's called burying the lead. Mm-hmm. The lead being the whole story, I and mean, you're supposed to be able to understand the whole story from the first paragraph. And if you have to read seven or eight paragraphs in order to understand what's going on, that's that's burying the lead. And If you think about the way that most people use email, and I'm sure people listening to this will identify emails they've read that are like this, and it might just even be emails they've sent. Very often, we have to read right down to the bottom of the email to find out what the person wants. It's all like background, background, background. Here's the story. Here's the stuff. And what I want is this. Uh, So much easier if you put at the top of the communication, I'm looking for this. Here's why. Here's why then somebody knows what we're asking of them. Uh, So, so what, you know, is a very important question to ask uh, in terms of designing content. And of course, if there's a a big speech coming up, and if you're going to be talking to a group of people and it's slightly more formal, then you can design your content uh, and think about the flow of it. Maybe say what you're going to say, say it, and then say what you said. That's a good old fashioned way of getting your point across. And I think my fourth TED talk, which was about designing spaces for the ears, I did exactly that. I said, it's time to start designing with our ears, explained why, and then finished by saying, it's time to start designing with our ears. So that's the whole thing summarized in the first sentence, pretty much. Um, And then one really important aspect of speaking, uh, which most people don't think of because they don't think of this dynamic between speaking and listening is this. You always speak into a listening. Hmm. You always speak into a listening. And that listening is different every time. Why? Because we all listen in different ways. You know, your listening is as individual as your fingerprints, your irises, your voiceprint. Because of all the things that have happened to you through your life, you know, you listen through filters. And if you understand that in every conversation you're speaking into a listening and you ask yourself, what's the listening? Then you can tailor your speaking to be that, more, that much more effective. It's, it's a common, one of, one of the most common communication errors to assume that everybody listens like I do mm-hmm. and speak the same way in all situations. But sometimes you'll hit the bullseye. Sometimes you'll miss the entire target because the person is listening in a very different way. They're listening for something or they're listening with an emotion going on, or they have an intention that you haven't twigged, or uh, they've got some values or beliefs that are really getting in the way of them listening to you. Uh, Maybe they don't, you know, you're young and they think nobody young's got anything to say, or whatever it might be, if you can get into the habit of asking, what's the listening? What's the listening? Just all the time. It becomes intuitive, Don't ask me how it works, but it really does. It becomes intuitive and you will hit the bullseye that many
0: more times because you'll be actually aiming at the right target. Well, and I'm so intrigued when you say into a listening, you know, that just sort of sparks in my head. I'm thinking, Oh, you know, what would be some of the key categories of types of listening or the key, maybe sort of sub principles you mentioned in terms of there may be a bias there may be a particular emotion. They may be a goal, you know, whatever they really want is this. And so could you maybe, you know, lay out some of those powerful questions that start to, you know, really paint a picture of what is the listening that I'm about to speak into?
1: Well, So we we can swap about going from speaking to listening, which is absolutely right, actually, Pete, because they are so intertwined. Um, We all listen through filters. So my my definition of listening is making meaning from sound. You hear everything. You select certain things to pay attention to, and then you make them mean something. So that's what listening is. It's a mental process. It's not physical. Hearing is entirely different. Listening is a, a skill, and it's a skill that can be practiced. Now, the filters that you listen through come from your, your uh, culture, the culture you're born into, the language you speak, your values, attitudes and beliefs that you accrete along the way initially from parents and then teachers, role models, friends, anybody else that you care to respect enough to say, well, I want to be like that. And then you have in any given situation, you have maybe expectations. I'm, I always say expectation is the mother of resentment because if we go in with a, a great set of expectations and we get disappointed, it's, it's very difficult to go on listening. And then intentions. You know, we, we may go into a conversation with the intention of achieving something. And that's a, another incredibly important thing to be aware of when you're asking what is the listening. Ask yourself, what are the intentions of the people I'm speaking to? What do they want out of this conversation? I know what I want. What do I want for me? What do they want for them? And of course, what do I want for them? So what is the set of intentions? There's always those three sets of intentions in a conversation. And they color listening as well. And then there might be emotions in play too. And so, you, know, you may have noticed it gets quite hard to listen when you're really upset. Mm-hmm. Uh, or to put it around the other way, if somebody is really upset, the best way of calming them down is to listen really carefully not speak, but just listen. I hear you. I hear you. And you will find that they calm down. I think listening and uh, upset are kind of inversely related most of the time. So those are some of the filters and and we all have different ones. So for example, I mean, you asked me to give some examples. I mean, if I speak to an older audience, I'm careful to use cultural references they may recognize. You know, I might talk about... The Beatles or, you know, a cultural reference that's rooted some years ago, some decades ago, as opposed to anything that's more modern. I did make a mistake the other way around. I mm-hmm. did a talk to 400 students in Istanbul a couple of years ago and used a, a sound, which was the Beatles, a complete wall of blank faces, absolutely no recognition whatsoever. So, you know, age can be involved here in terms of the filters, uh, people's political attitudes, and I, I think what we've seen both here in the UK and in the US in the last year or two shows how people are dangerously short of the ability to listen to each other when they get polarized and mm. um, bigoted and extreme in their views. And, they, you know, it's, it's very easy. If you don't listen to somebody, you won't understand them. You can caricature them. You can dismiss their views. Uh, you can make them into a paper tiger. Um, listening consciously always creates understanding which is why I always say I think politicians should go off. And instead of having talks, it would be much better if they went off and had listens instead. So those are some examples of ways in which listening can be very different. Politics, religion, age, social background, um, any kind of strong attitudes like that, intentions very much in any conversation. You know, uh, I don't know if anybody listening to this is selling for a living, for example. Well, if you if you do, you'll know how difficult it is to sell to somebody who is just not in the market, not thinking that way at all. Uh, you have to do a huge amount of pre-selling and conversation to open their mind to the fact that they may have a problem that you've got a solution for. Um, and Whereas if somebody's seeking something actively, that's a totally different listening in which you can have a sales conversation. So... Those kind of things, those kind of um, listenings, can make all the difference in the world. And if you don't spot the listening and you speak inappropriately, it just won't work very well.
0: Well, I really dig into what you're saying there with regard to the loop of you know the speaking and the listening, and then just sort of like the reinforcing and going around the cycle. And and I want to go a little bit deeper on one of the sort of intentions or desires you mentioned some folks have with their listening, And I think it's a pretty common one. And that is, I hope this isn't boring, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. like if it going into a meeting or if they're at a conference, uh, seeing a speaker. And so I'd love to get your pro tips on it. If that is the common context folks are going into what are some appropriate ways to modify your communication? Because, I mean, you know, I don't think you, you want to be a, a stand-up comedian or, or a clown, but there are certain things that make communications more interesting and engaging and fun, and, and less so interesting, engaging, and fun. And I'd love to get your take on some of those. Definitely. Well, um, first, content. In, uh,
1: in the book, I interviewed Chris Anderson, the curator of TED, and asked him, uh, the old chestnut, which is more important, content, uh, content or delivery? And given the choice, Chris would go for content every time. Somebody who's got something really important to say, even if they deliver it in a tedious or unprofessional or rambling way, is going to have a better effect than somebody who is a brilliant presenter and just vapid, empty, saying nothing of substance at all. There's a kind of frustration when you see somebody who's really good at presenting and they they finish and you go, what was that about? Mm -hmm. You know, it's fun, but... Have we moved anywhere? Of course, the ideal is to have both things going on at the same time. But I always say, what's the big idea? I mean, if you're talking to somebody and um, you're accurate in their listening and you understand what they're about, uh, then you need to have an idea that you're putting across to them, something that's going to educate, inspire, inform, entertain, Uh, you know, giving them something is a gift. It's a gift Mm -hmm. we're giving when we speak to somebody. Incidentally, it's a huge gift also to give listening to somebody. I mean, there are millions of billions of people on this planet who've never had the experience of being properly listened to, which is doing nothing other than listening. Mm -hmm. Most of us indulge in kind of partial listening where we're doing something else at the same time and uh, giving a bit of our attention. Uh, So speaking in that way, speaking with a what's the big idea, being clear about it, so what? Uh, then you've got a good chance of engaging people. And then we're into really the the how you say it side. And I talk about uh, in my TED Talk and then in the book, I extend this enormously. I talk about the vocal toolbox. And uh, I give a lot of tips also for presenting, speaking on stage, uh, presenting formally, how to stand, uh, all sorts of things. Maybe we should open... The vocal toolbox we can do that if you, if you'd like to go through a few of the things there and, and and these are things that do stop people from being boring they they enhance interest yes please let's do that well let's start with somewhere that's kind of unusual that people may not necessarily associate with the the, the power of their speaking and that is stance um, posture gestures uh, it's very possible to stand in a way which immediately Um, robs you of power like feet turned in or making yourself smaller in any way really a good practice is to practice standing upright i always imagine roots coming from my feet so that i don't move around unnecessarily feet roughly shoulder width apart slightly narrower for females um Everything's stacked vertically above everything else. And imagine there's a string in the top of your head and you're dangling from it. So your shoulders are nice and loose and down. Everything is vertically aligned. Now, what that means is two things. First of all, you look poised and confident. I'm not saying lock anything up. You know, you can feel flexible, but you look poised and confident in that pose. Second thing, your throat is in optimal position. With your throat vertical, your vocal cords are neither stretched nor compressed. You know, if you put your head right forward on your shoulders, your voice sounds like this. And if you scrunch your th- throat right up, your voice sounds like this. It's a very important thing to have your head vertical. And incidentally, we we tend not to do that very often. When we're on the phone sitting at a desk, we lean forward and the voice goes a bit like this. And that's not the best way to speak on the phone, of course. So always try to be vertical. Stance um, is one thing. Gestures another. I see people making some quite negative gestures in when in speaking. Either they're kind of irrelevant and distracting gestures, and gestures need to be you know, conscious all the time, uh, or they undermine what the speaker is trying to say. There's one in particular I would advise people not to use in interviews or any other situation in work, which is the open-handed gesture. I've seen politicians do this. Uh, and many people do it unconsciously, including I've seen some TED speakers do this, give a whole talk with their hands palm up in front of them, waving them to emphasize points. Now, if you put your two hands palm up in front of you, mm-hmm. what you're actually saying is, I have no weapons. I'm not going to harm you. Please don't hurt me. It's a begging gesture. And it's not a powerful gesture. It's called the placator in Virginia Satter's um, very interesting work about uh, family modes and modes of um, communicating. And uh, it it is not a strong gesture to use. Many politicians, if you want to wave your hands in front of you, emphasizing points, turn the thumbs vertical so the hands are vertical, that's a neutral gesture. And you'll see a lot of politicians speaking that way with their hands vertical. Uh, It's meaningless, but um, it, it just creates a bit of emphasis. So gestures can be powerfully for us, big gestures are strong. You know, again, watch some great speakers and see how they gesticulate. Um, but anything that makes that's making you look smaller—it's the opposite of uh, what Professor Amy Cuddy mm-hmm. talks about in her TED Talk, which is the second most watched TED Talk of all time, which is power poses. Anything that makes you bigger is a power pose. Releases testosterone, and makes you feel stronger and more confident. If you're making yourself smaller, it's the opposite, and you're releasing hormones which do exactly the opposite of that and make you feel less confident. So posture, very important. Second, breathing, so important. You know, the, the, the voice is just breath, so breath is the fuel for the voice, and most of us breathe like a bird, you know, just mm-hmm. to the top of our lungs. I don't know when it is that people listening to this, even just reflect, when's the last time you took a huge, deep breath? really opening your chest, moving your ribs, it's such an important thing to do. And I always say, uh, you know, as walking on stage, I have a little acronym, BESS, and the, the B stands for breathe. It's also a great antidote to nerves. You know, if you get a little bit like this when you walk on stage and you're a little bit frightened like this, a deep breath will settle all that stuff down and give you much more solidity in your voice. Incidentally, the uh, ESS of best stands for expand your awareness to take in the whole room, get your stance right and smile, which is always a nice thing to do before you start talking. So that's whether you're walking into a room and presenting or even walking up to an individual to, to have a conversation, breathe, expand, stand well and smile. And that's uh, going to set you up very well. And then the voice itself. Many people don't know that we have different registers for the voice and Really, I'll just mention a couple. It's not worth talking. A falsetto, you know, you really wouldn't <laughs> use this to, to try and speak in power. It's not, not a very useful one. So uh, it's like Monty Python, you know, he's a very naughty boy. You know, that's, mm-hmm. uh, it's a comic register, really. Um, the modal register is the one we use pretty much most of the time, which encompasses head, throat, and chest And you can go right up into your head like this. You can speak from your nose. It's um, a little bit less powerful. You can speak from your throat, which can sound uh, quite constricted, although this is where most people speak from most of the time. Uh, Or you can go right down into your chest and resonate from there. I I expect you can hear the difference Mm -hmm. when I do that. So professionals train in using their diaphragm and resonating in their chest to give them extra power. And incidentally, we... Vote for politicians with deeper voices, all other things being equal, because we associate depth with power and importance. You know, an elephant is more important than a mouse. Anything that's deep, we think is big and substantial. So deep voices tend to be more authoritative than higher or squeaky voices. And if you have a high voice listening to this, you can get that affected by going to a vocal coach and working on your diaphragm, your projection, your resonance in your chest. Uh, many people just unconsciously are up here all the time and it's a little
0: bit lighter and perhaps not quite so effective as being down here. And so now one way to make that transition is to see a vocal coach. Mm. Are there other exercises or things one could do you know, on your own in terms of getting that, res- when you say the word resonance, I'm imagining you could even just put your hand on the area and sort of feel how much vibrations flow in there. That's the way to do it. Exactly. And, uh, you know, I'm
1: guessing Pete, you've probably done some vocal training in your life. You have a wonderful deep voice. Oh, It's the
0: morning here in the (laughs) U S.
1: Well, yes. Putting your hand on your throat or next to your nose, you can feel the vibrations and really, um, I mean, of course, your voice always comes from your vocal cords, and there's a lot of debate amongst people as, as to whether you're actually moving anything. Nevertheless, I think becoming conscious of this and consciously speaking from those places is very possible to do by moving your hand, by placing your hand on your chest and just trying to resonate in that place. Practice, just practice at home and it will work. Um, vocal coaches are all over the world as well. You know, Google either a singing coach or a drama coach or a speaking coach in your area, try a few out, uh, have a, you know, have a trial session uh, and you'll click with one, whichever one has got the chemistry that works with you. And then, you know, do a series of sessions with them. And uh, probably as with me, when I did, did this, uh, you know, I still do it from time to time. They have you doing all sorts of uncomfortable things like squirming on the floor, pretending to be foreign, uh, you know, uh, using your highest, your lowest voice. They, they will test and challenge you a little bit. And my goodness, what a difference it makes to your mastery of this amazing instrument that we all play. So register, very important. Uh, pace as well. You know, a lot of people get into the habit of being uh, very... Uh, unvarying in their delivery. And that's a big issue. You need to have light and shade. You need to have contours, contours in pace where perhaps sometimes you get really fast and really excited and it's all energetic and that's marvelous. And other times when you slow right down to make a point. And people will pay attention when you do these things. So again, if you're in, you know, if you feel you have a listening which is bored or tired or anything like that, these variations are critical in getting your point across uh, and indeed, you know, c- c- communicating your emotional state.
0: Oh, yes. Yeah. So, so I want to hear you to mention variations in your register and then in your pace. I also want to get your take on variations in volume. Is that appropriate? And what's the effect?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It is uh, all, all of the, the three things that you can vary pace, pitch and volume uh, are extremely important you know, pitch alone, uh, whether you go out of different register or stay in the same register. And if I say, where did you leave my keys? That's kind of neutral. If I say, where did you leave my keys? Immediately, I'm more upset about it. So Mm. uh, pace can vary. Pitch can vary. uh, Volume absolutely can vary. Or you can whisper something to get it across in a deep and precise way. So yes, simply varying for the sake of varying uh, is not a bad practice. I mean, not so it detracts from your content, but being conscious not to be going on in the same way with the same cadences, the same pace, the same pitch all the time. One of the things I love doing is playing with space, you know, with silence
0: there it is. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Actually, yeah, there it is. I mean, now uh, look, this is a podcast and people are listening to this and radio people have an absolute terror of what they call dead air because they think people are going to be banging their instrument. Uh, you know, uh, what's going on? Is it? Have I, have I, have I gone off air? Is it broken? changing the channel, whatever happens. Well, if you're standing in front of somebody, they know that you haven't disappeared mm-hmm. and you can stop for the longest time on a stage or in a conversation and people will stay with you. Um, you know, it, 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 there, a lot of people have a terror of being silent and they will gabble and fill it up with ums and uhs and you knows and uh, all sorts of little noises. Well, it's not necessary. You know, we can be poised. We can take our time. And, of course, the spaces between the words are the things that make everything make sense. You know, silence is the context for all sound. Without silence, music is meaningless. Conversation is meaningless. So let's use it as part of our palette and, you know, make sure that everything that we say is constructed to the max. Um, I'm not talking about being artificial or um, planning every word. I'm, I'm talking about being conscious and using these tools wherever it feels appropriate, and certainly being conscious enough not to be monotonous. I mean that is the way in which you'll get people bored. And one big aspect of monotony, of course, is lack of prosody, which is probably my favourite part of the vocal toolbox. It's the the up and down of speech, which mm-hmm. comes from. If you believe the, the scientists, it probably comes from ancient motheries, you know, mothers going, oh, to their little babies. And uh, we, Stephen Mython, the anthropologist, believes we started with a proto hum before there was language at all. We communicated just with, hmm, hmm, mm, and these kind of noises. Uh, so you can say a lot with tone alone. And it's really important to do that because if you speak in a complete monotone the whole time, then it does become rather robotic and boring and you lose a huge amount of the emotional impact. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Uh, Monotone means one tone. Monotonous uh, monotonous is speaking in one tone. So if you have a voice which is naturally not terrifically um, vibrant and uh, doesn't exercise prosody very much, again, I would work on that. I think this is possibly the most important part, actually. Um, I would sit at home practicing exaggerated prosody, really getting the voice up and down enormously and extending the range. Again, it's like building muscles. If you work in a gym, you know, you're stronger to do everything. Uh, If you practice these exercises, then you become more effective in your speaking all the time. I should say also, prosody is is cultural mm-hmm. and one needs to be sensitive to that you know i go to scandinavia fairly often and in scandinavia and particularly finland where it's about they're very taciturn people generally yes we are very excited about this mm-hmm. this is a, an extremely good idea Yeah, you know, i've done talks in finland where i've i finished the talk and there's a kind of mild ripple of applause and i've thought oh i've bombed i've tanked what's happened and then somebody comes up to me afterwards and says, that was the best talk we have had for several years. And you know, <laughs> that's the way they are. So you have to adjust. And I mean, I know that there are CEOs of Scandinavian country uh, companies who had to be trained in prosody in order not to sound like that to the rest of the world because they sound like they're not engaged a little bit. On the other hand, if you go to Italy, everything is up and down, you know, fantastic. You know? And uh, the prosody is completely different. So it's, it's also quite important to be sensitive to your local prosody and not not be over the top mm. nevertheless i think you're you're getting all the way through these things i'm talking about the key word over and over again is conscious it's being conscious of what you're doing speaking is a skill listening is a skill these are things that we do actively these are activities and if we are unconscious about them we're, not, we're going to be you know a tenth as effective as if we're being conscious about them and enjoying. It's like enjoying a meal. You know, if you are sitting in front of a TV, wolfing it down, you taste nothing, it's gone. And you think, what was that? Whereas if you sit at the table and savor the mouthfuls, then you have a totally different
0: experience. Same thing with speaking and listening. Hmm. Well, Julian, that's a nice summary point. Tell me, is there anything else you want to mention, you know, from your upcoming book, How to Be Heard, or any other wisdom that you really want to make sure to get out there before we shift gears and talk about uh, a few of your favorite things. I think if we're
1: talking about being effective at work, there's just one acronym from the book. It's in the TED talk as well, but the book goes into it in more detail. And that is RASA, which is the Sanskrit word for juice. And it's a very good acronym to remember in conversation with other people. The R is receive. And uh, the R means um, paying attention to the other person with everything you've got, looking at them which is uh, actually getting quite rare. You know, people Mm -hmm. listening while they're texting, while they're writing, while they're doing something else, while they're not looking up. And we've all had that experience of feeling, yeah, this person's just not listening to me because they're not looking. If you lean forward towards the person slightly, uh, especially if you're sitting down, the body language is very important. So paying attention with everything you've got. The A is appreciate, appreciate, And those are the little noises like, "Mm, oh, ah, really? Uh, Which, as I always say, I forget to do a lot on the phone. So people say, are you still there? Mm -hmm. I'm listening intently. Um, And that doesn't work so well on radio, so you're being very good at not making those noises all the time. Nevertheless, in conversation, it's much more natural to make them. And they're the little sounds that kind of oil conversation. They make it flow more easily and show that you're still present and listening. Uh, The S is summarize, it's the word so, uh, which I actually want to form a society for the preservation of because um, particularly in your country, but it's now very common over here as well in the UK, the word is being rather debased. What do you do for a living? So I write websites. I don't see the logical sequence there. So means that, then this. Mm -hmm. It's a summarizing word. And uh, it's not a word to start every sentence with, which unfortunately is happening more and more these days. If you have a so person in a meeting, it can be a very effective meeting. So we've all agreed this. Now we can put it aside and get on with that. If you don't have a so person in the meeting, it can be a very long meeting going round and round and round in circles, giving rise to that wonderful phrase, meetings are where you take minutes and waste hours. Mm -hmm. So then the A of Rasa is ask just asking questions all the way through and at the end to show that you were paying attention and engaged. Rasa, a lot of people have told me over the years that that's been very powerful for them in improving their communication
0: skills. Oh, perfect. Thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring?
1: I love the quote from Aristotle,
0: uh, which people have probably come
1: across, but I think it's so true. He said, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence then is not an act, but a habit. And habit forming with these good things is so important. So that's why I've stuffed the book full of little exercises people can do and just practice over and over again until they become ingrained and their communication gets that much more powerful. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite book? I would have to say my favorite book at the moment is a book called White Bicycles, which is by Joe Boyd, a famous producer of the 1960s. And it's all about making music in the 1960s and listening in the precise and careful way that he does uh so you know that's what i've in the last couple of years the book i've enjoyed the absolute most and i'm rereading it at the moment and how about a favorite tool i would have to say my favorite tool is my macbook pro which i've been traveling with for many years i barely leave home without it because my entire life is in there and certainly i mean i use it for all my talks I use it to think, uh, I use it to, my memory is not the best all the time. So I've got wonderful memory tools in there. Um, yeah, I, I would be pretty lost without that particular piece of kit. Mm-hmm.
0: All right. And how about a favorite
1: habit? Drinking water on rising is mm-hmm. an important one for me. I think that's a, a really good way to start the day off and to lubricate my throat, which is you know, an important tool for me. Uh, and you know, drinking water through the day actually, um, is a habit that I believe gives me great health
0: and helps me to be that much more effective. Certainly. And is there a particular nugget you share that tends to really resonate and get folks sort of saying again and again, that thing you said there was really transformational?
1: Yes, I think uh, when I speak about the way sound affects human beings, you know, it affects our body, it affects our feelings, it affects our thinking, and it affects our behavior in very profound ways, it's transformative because most people don't think about sound very much at all. And when they start to realize that, and we have this conversation over and over again with, with organizations as well as with individuals, it's like, it's so obvious, but I never thought of it. I never thought of the fact that sound is making me ill or making me less effective at work or irritating me or upsetting me. Um, and these things all go on all the time. So Really, I mean, my mission in the, in the world, my vision is to have a world which listens consciously and the, and the mission is to get everybody listening in so that we can take responsibility for the sound that we make
0: and for the sound that we consume. And that
1: would be a very different world, I think.
0: Uh-huh. And Julian, tell me if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them?
1: I have a website, which is simply
0: juliantreasure.com. And
1: on there, you can learn about the talks I do, my book or my books actually. Um, there's also the, the company's website, the sound agency is the company. So that's the and the book itself has a website also if people are interested in the book, uh, which is, you know, it's coming out, I think November 7. Um,
0: and, uh, the book's website is howtobeheardbook.com. All right. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah. Listen, listen. It's a, it's a skill.
1: It's a dying skill and great listeners are the most effective people at work. They're better leaders, they're better team members, and they're more effective in every aspect of working. So pay attention, listen carefully, and you will find
0: an enormous difference in your effectiveness, well-being and happiness. All right. Julian, thank you so much for taking this time. This is such good stuff. I'm going to be chewing on it for a while, I'm sure. And I just wish you lots of luck in in all your speaking and the book and being heard and just making the difference you make. Well, thank you so much, Pete. It's been a joy
1: and I hope it's it's going to be of service to everybody listening. So my best wishes to
0: all of you. I appreciated what Julian had to say about emails in terms of, here's the story, here's the stuff, and what I want is this, as opposed to flipping it. I'm looking for this, here's why. And I'm a big proponent of that. Call it bottom line up front. Call it answer first communication. It really does galvanize attention and get things organized and moving all the faster in exchanges. So I recommend trying that and even taking a moment to think through so that you can override your default tendency to give the chronological story of what's up and why we're here now instead of just going right to what you want and need in the moment. It really does accelerate things and get attention pointed in the right ways. So I hope that you find that and other pieces useful. And again, if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced here, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep 224 And I hope you push subscribe to hear from our next guest. It's Kelly Hoey. Kelly's talking about how to build your dream network. And I hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.